The financial views and opinions expressed by the host and guests on this program do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of 1077 The Bronx, Ryder University, or Certified Wealth Management and Investment. The material discussed is not designed to provide the listeners with individual financial, legal, or tax advice. It's time to grow your bank as 1077 LeBron presents Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, a certified financial planner professional with certified wealth management and investment. Kurt and his team of financial guests will help you turn those singles into seas of green and plan your financial future accordingly. Now here's your money managing host for the hour, Kurt Baker. Are you aware of how community banks can assist you in economic situations, particularly an inflationary one? Do you know what resources community banks can offer? Pat L. Ryan, president and CEO of First Bank and a member of its board of directors, will teach you everything you need to know about community banks. Today, we'll inform you about the value of having a good corporate neighbor in your backyard. Pat, thanks for coming on again. You've been on before, and last time you were on, we had not had a number of things happen. One, we didn't have a pandemic occur. And two, uh, inflation was relatively low. So um, we only have a little less than an hour. So we'll try to cover as much of that as we can. But um, I guess the one that I, being a, you know dealing with small business owners all the time, how, do, how have you seen that kind of affected, and how did the community banking industry, how did you guys respond to the small business owner when all this started to happen and, and so forth. You want to tell us that story a little bit? Yeah, sure. Happy to, Kurt. And thanks for having me back. You're right. It is a uh, different time for sure than when I was here in the past. There's a lot going on right now. And I think there's a lot of anxiety, you know, the anxiety that w- existed for all of us during COVID and the health concerns has sort of shifted to financial security anxiety related to, uh, you know, where are interest rates headed, what's happening with the economy. And uh, I think now more than ever, uh, it's important to uh, to be close to your financial advisors. Certainly, uh, your community bankers should be on that short list of financial advisors. And uh, there's a lot that uh, people can and should be thinking about right now with uh, rates moving up. We've got an inverted yield curve. We've got GDP that's been negative for two quarters in a row. There's there's a lot of uh, different things for folks to be thinking about. So I think it's timely to have this discussion and uh, looking forward to the chat. So. Yeah, you just mentioned the negative yield curve. Now, I know what that is, but just for the <laughs> listeners, you want to describe what that is and some of them yeah, may not know what you're yeah, talking about. And yeah, how does that impact me, uh, the banker? How does that impact us as consumers or as business owners? How does that actually impact us a little bit? Yeah, I appreciate you pointing out. I uh, get a little jargon heavy sometimes. <laughs> so okay. uh, thanks for... But, we all uh, do that. It's the, all good. Uh, the, the terminology negative yield curve really just looks at what uh, the interest rates are like on a short-term basis compared to on a long-term basis. So, for example, the most liquid, the most uh, actively traded market is U.S. Treasuries. And so you can look at what your yield would be on, a say, a two-year U.S. Treasury compared to, say, a 10-year U.S. Treasury. And in most times, the interest rate you would earn if you lent money to the government uh, for 10 years would be higher than if you did for two years. But right now, given what the Federal Reserve has been doing with their federal funds, which is the overnight rate, um, what you see is the... uh, the yield on a 10-year U.S. Treasury is actually a fair bit lower than a two-year U.S. Treasury, which means if you were going to buy Treasuries, you would actually earn less money if you were doing it 
lending it out over 10 years versus mm-hmm. two years. And, and that usually is a signal of potential economic slowdown. Because right. if you think about it, why would somebody take a lower yield over a longer time period? The only reason would be if they think rates are ultimately coming down again. Right. They may be better off over the 10 years locking in a, a rate of, say, 270 versus getting 3% on a two-year because you could get 3% for two years, but then if rates come back down, you might get a lot less than that for right. the remaining eight years. So. So that's interesting. So now that we've we've had a little bit of a shift here, so we're coming out of the pandemic. So business owners now, unfortunately, some of them are gone, but others are doing well, and some in the middle, like not sure what to do. And on top of that, the rates are going up. So how are you seeing kind of that dynamic occur for the different segments of the business ownership and the fact that rates are starting to go up and went up pretty significantly in a short period of time? How's that affecting the business community and the banking community? Yeah, it's interesting because right now what's happening with interest rates is largely driven by what's happening with inflation. As, as most folks know, uh, the inflation uh, readings have been very high over the last uh, several months and several quarters, and that's been pushing the Federal Reserve to move up the short-term interest rates. So uh, inflation by itself can be bad for businesses to the extent that it increases your input costs. So uh, depending on your type of business, uh, your main components of your costs may be going up because of inflation, which can be a challenge. Now, Part of the reason that the Federal Reserve is raising rates and inflation is moving higher is because most businesses are passing those increases on to their customers. And so uh, what we're seeing is even though expenses and costs are moving up for businesses, revenue is moving up in line. So currently, most folks are actually doing fairly well or better because the other thing that's happening is businesses are struggling to get staff. and. At the end of the day, that creates long-term challenges, but in the short run, assuming they can still produce their product or service and they're selling it at an even higher rate, their short-term profitability is better because they're doing it with fewer people. In essence, right. they're finding ways to become more efficient. So uh, I think for the time being, businesses businesses are doing fine, but everybody's rightfully concerned about what the future holds and how much higher our rate's going to go. And so you know, everybody got used to you know, paying three and four percent for debt, and uh, that made operating businesses a little bit easier. Now rates are in the five percent range, and that you know is an added expense that uh, businesses have to incur. But you know, I think we all need to remember that those three and four percent interest rates were unusually low, and right. I think over uh, most cycles, you know, most businesses will tend to pay between you know mid four up to six percent, depending on. Uh, you know, what the economic situation is. So I think in some ways what we're seeing is a normalization of interest rates. It just feels difficult because we got used to paying a lot less for a long time. So Right. That's that's very true. And I guess, yeah, you mentioned that the, the labor shortage is a little bit of an issue. So, um, I mean, I go like the restaurants and stuff. I know some of them have shorter hours. They have, you know, the labor shortage and so forth. So how how does the community bank like help the business owners now that the rates are a little bit higher? And how do you look at the business itself? Because you must be looking at it a little bit differently. If I'm a restaurant owner three or four years ago, you're probably analyzing my numbers a little bit differently than you might be now. So are there any adjustments you're helping business owners kind of figure out? Or how, how do you how do you like determine? Because we don't really know what's happening. So you have to they get a different risk profile, I guess is what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. The risk profiles change, although, uh, you know, admittedly for the time being, I think most businesses, the ones that survive the economic shocks from COVID, 
uh, are actually doing a little bit better, both because profit margins have improved for the reasons we discussed, and their balance sheets are better because you know they were able to use stimulus funds to pay down debt and do other things. So in general, I think businesses has le- have less leverage, which makes them uh, stronger in terms of their ability to withstand the uncertainty. So it's it's an ironic situation because I think a lot of businesses are doing better than they have in a long time. Their financial position based on their uh, balance sheet is stronger than it's ever been. Yet there's enough storm clouds out there that, you know, people, despite looking good on paper, are, are actually feeling quite nervous. And the important thing to do with uh, with your banker is just to think through the scenarios, right? Do some stress testing, run some numbers, right? Most businesses will take a look at, here's what I think I'm going to do next year or over the next couple of years. But run a couple different scenarios, right? What does it look like if rates really move higher? What does it look like if demand starts to uh, moderate or come back down? What does it look like if, you know, um, all of a sudden you, you lose a key contractor, a key customer? And those are the kind of scenario analyses that can be very helpful so that you make sure you're in a decent position if some of the potential bad things happen, right? At the end of the day, there's always potential for bad things to happen. I think most business owners that uh, have survived over long periods of time have done it by making sure they're protected in those downside scenarios. And that's where, you know, conversations with the bank can be really helpful. Yeah, I think if anything, we've learned how to adjust and how to pivot during the the COVID, the shutdown, because literally some of them had to close for quite a while. And so they've done a little kind of the ultimate stress test. I mean, how do you handle a closure and a readjustment. So, um, I mean, what were some of the strategies you saw then? And is that, I guess, is that what we're learned? And now, are they more educated, I guess? Since they went through this, do you feel like the business community is a little bit more educated? And you also mentioned they're concerned about lending. So what's the demand for capital look like now? Because you've got two things, rates went up, and people are a little bit concerned. If I'm a business owner, I own a restaurant, am I gonna open up another location? I mean, I know people that are actually expanding right now because they're sure. like, hey, there's a void now. So well, I'm going to go out and do things that maybe because other people went out of business. I mean, what kind of things are you hearing well, from business a owners? Big, there's a big question right now. There's in certain segments, and I think restaurants are one of them, where demand has not only rebound post-COVID, but it's higher than it's ever been. A lot of uh, the restaurateurs that survived are doing incredibly well right now. And of course, you know, uh, micro economics teaches you, macroeconomics teaches you that, you know, the more successful the restaurants are, the more folks will get into the game to the eventual equilibrium point where folks won't make as much money. So that's what I think people are trying to think through is, is this spike in demand a temporary spike or is there, is it a fundamental change? You mentioned something about the, the COVID being, you know, the ultimate stress test on businesses. And I think that's right from an operational standpoint. I think businesses had to find ways to get incredibly creative to continue to operate and survive during, you know, an unprecedented period of change and restriction. The the financial stress test is a little bit different because a lot of businesses ultimately through PPP uh, interest rates, remember, got got lowered significantly. A right. lot of businesses were able to uh, go on uh, a moratorium, not have to pay uh, the banks for a while. And so ultimately, 
the resiliency that we saw from the business community on the operational side was was unbelievable. I think better than any of us could have hoped for. The the practical reality is based on the government programs and stimulus. Certain segments were very hard hit, but others didn't have the financial stress that maybe we thought they would. And I think for them, some of those folks, you know, the scenario modeling we discussed is really more about how do I handle the financial risk versus the operational risk. And I think that's you know, those are the conversations folks should be having with their banks right now. Awesome. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Master Your Finances. This is Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, certified financial planner professional. Learn about tax efficiency, liability, owning, managing, and saving your money and more from Kurt and his experienced panel of guests. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider University offers flexible education for adult learners. For more information, it's rider.edu slash next step. Welcome back. You're listening to Master Your Finance. I'm here with uh, Pat Ryan of First Bank. And uh, we've got some changes in the economy. We've learned a lot from uh, the pandemic. Let's go through like some of the specific things that happened then. I know you mentioned the PPP, and you also mentioned the moratorium. So if, I guess we'll start off with the PPP, because I know that you guys were kind of out in front of this and really helped a lot of um, people locally. So how did that process go? I mean, we never had this program ever before. I remember trying to go in and figure out, what is this thing? And who qualifies and how do you do this? So kind of walk us through how that all occurred when you when this program first rolled out and then what happened. Yeah, sure. You know, it's interesting because PPP became ultimately this fundamental case study and I think the value of community banking because what you ultimately saw was it was the community banks, uh, perhaps because they were a bit smaller, a little more nimble, a little more flexible, uh, ourselves included, were able to put together programs very, very quickly and ultimately, most folks who qualified got the money. So it wasn't about necessarily getting money to people because a lot of folks were able to ultimately get it. But that anxiety that existed in the early stages, uh, I think the community bank industry really did a good job of you know, going back to basics. Right? I remember we, we pulled our team together. We read all the, the, the regulations about the program. We you know, called consultants to figure out how we're, how we're going to do this. And at the beginning, the only way to do it was the old-fashioned way, paper forms, filling things out, you know, going out and sitting down and figuring out what information we needed and you know, getting it sent in. And uh, you know, the, the process at the beginning was very, very manual. And I think the community banks, because they haven't always been relying on technology, maybe to a fault, uh, were able to quickly get up to speed and uh, put something together. And uh, the, the nice part about those manual processes we created is it kept everybody informed, right? Everybody that applied for a PPP loan through First Bank had a dedicated relationship manager they could call and say, where are we in the application process? What information do you still need? Where are we with the SBA? Because we had direct portals set up with the SBA and we could get information back from them quickly. So, you know, that process was was critical. Listen, a lot of businesses ultimately that applied turned out they didn't need it. Thankfully, they didn't need it. But that uh, initial influx of, of cash to reduce the anxiety was was so, so critical. And you mentioned the moratorium because the, the other thing that happened around the same time was the regulators basically came out and said to the banks, hey, it's okay uh, you know, work with your customers. It's okay if they don't pay for 
you know, 60 days, 90 days, 180 days. And, you know, as community bankers, we're always uh, biased towards working with our customers if there's an issue and if they need some help. The problem is the regulatory structure doesn't usually allow for that. There, unfortunately, tends to be a lot of criticism from the regulatory side if they feel like you're not doing what you should to get rid of these loans that aren't performing. Mm -hmm. And uh, to give us the flexibility to, uh, without fear of retribution, work with our customers, give them those moratoriums was was critical. Um, and the, the process worked very well. We got the money out the door quickly through PPP. Folks didn't need to pay for three or six months, which gave them some breathing room. And, uh, you know, the vast majority of folks uh, after that initial three or six month period was over, came back to, to paying as agreed, you know, based on the return of uh, things going okay in their business. So it, it was amazing, you know, despite there's going to be a lot of people coming out saying, oh, there's fraud in PPP and, you know, we could have done things differently, you know, in hindsight, which is all fine and good. But if you really think back to the unprecedented nature of what we all went through, uh, I think collectively the business community, the regulatory community deserves high marks for making sure a, a really bad situation didn't become a catastrophe. Yeah, that's interesting. So, um, yeah, so when somebody re, um, I know when people defer the loan, right, so they have to, like, let's say I'm not paying a loan for six months. What 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 happened? Am I still owe the interest and all that? Is it recapitalized? Remember how that went? Because it was like, I yeah, think you still had ultimately pay it, right? Yeah, I mean, ultimately the, the structure was a forbearance, not a forgiveness. So. Right. Depending on what the customer wanted, right after six months, they could either choose to pay a little more each month if they wanted to catch up gradually over time. Or a lot of folks, what they did was, you know, if you had a five-year loan, right, maybe you had three years left on the loan, whatever the amount of unpaid principal and interest just got tacked onto the end. Right. And then at maturity, uh, the amount owed would include that. And then that could be refinanced or paid off depending on what the borrower wanted to do. So. So it gave you a lot of flexibility. So the other thing is, uh, now you're a bank, so you're a critical service. So how did you actually operate? Because we went one day from everybody going to work, next day, nobody's going to work. Now you have to have an institution to run. So yeah. how did that process occur and how did you guys handle that just from an operational standpoint, the, the shift? Yeah, operationally, there's two key components. There's the back office and then there's the branches. Obviously, the branches all got closed. Everything got closed right away. Uh, our IT team did an amazing job of setting up the back office to work remotely through VPN and through uh, other tools. So, um, you know, we really weren't down for very long. Now, obviously, people weren't working in the office the way they had been. But, you know, within a matter of days, folks were set up to work remotely. And depending on your position, you could do, you know, 90 plus percent of what you used to do in the office at home, which allowed us to be effective with PPP and many other things. Now, a lot of the branches had to close for a period of time. Thankfully, through online banking and telephone banking and other things, folks could still move money around and get access to cash through the ATMs. And then, you know, for a while, we went to uh, banking by appointment. So we had the branch team together in, in a little bit of a cluster. And, uh, you know, folks could come into the branch if they had an appointment. And, you know, we wanted to make sure that we knew who was coming in and, uh, we were doing, you know, keeping the the number of people in the branches down. But, uh, yeah, I mean, listen, we evolved and adapted the same way everybody else had to, which is figuring out what the customer needs and figure out a way to get it to them. And thankfully, the technology allowed the remote work because that was the biggest piece. So now that you've gone through this process where we were 
wide open, we're closed, and now we're open again. Did we learn any? Did you learn anything from those adjustments that you made that might have might be sticking around, so to speak? That you're still using? Are you using any of that now? Or are you back to just basically the way you operated before? And as far as the the way the employees gather and and all that, any changes that kind of stuck? Yeah, I mean, right now we're still operating in a fairly flexible environment. Most departments are managing based on what the department needs so we don't have universal rules about who needs to be in when and where we have set things up so everybody has dedicated in-office space we haven't gone to a hoteling environment per se but that's largely because we had the space to use for it but most departments are set up where folks are in two to three days a week not everybody in the same day but um and the other thing is you know in terms of things that stayed i think a lot of folks that might have been hesitant to adopt certain technology solutions, whether it be online banking, remote deposit capture, taking pictures of checks with your phones. I mean, those are the most obvious examples. Folks preferred to go into the branch. So they said, well, you know, okay, I know that exists, but I don't mind going. I like the personal interaction, blah, blah, blah. Well, a lot of, a lot of those folks sort of had to learn how to use the technology. And I think as a result, some of them are coming back, but I don't think they're coming back with the same frequency that maybe they were before. So I would say it accelerated the trend that was already underway, which is the reduction in the amount of time people are spending in the branches. So, you know, the big term in our industry is omni-channel, right? Making sure that folks can bank the way they want, where they want, how they want. And that still includes the branch. But if you think about the old model, the branch was 90% of what people right. thought about when they thought of banking. Now it's, you know, less than 50% in terms of how they utilize the resources. So now that we've when we kind of forced everybody to learn how to use this technology, I know like as an example, I mean, I never used things like Zoom prior to the pandemic. Right. I was like, to, you got to get on Zoom. I'm like, what? What? I don't know. What is that? <laughs> you yeah, know? Right. I knew other platforms, but I didn't. I wasn't for that. So now that we've been trained, so it's almost like they tr we trained the public, kind of by force almost. Not that we wanted to do that, but now that they know how to do it, they're more comfortable with working with these other channels. So, um, so have you seen any? Uh, the, how, have, how have your customers responded to that now that like, hey? I know how to use this. Do they enjoy the process better? Is it more efficient? Is it, um, does that? Yeah, listen, I think for some folks, there's an efficiency for sure, right? Somebody that came into the branch that didn't need to now has some extra time perhaps. But, you know, it depends on the segment of the customer base, right? We have certain customers who, uh, you know, maybe are retired. So for them to, you know, come into the branch and catch up with their banker, that was part of their routine right. and their ritual. And I think for a lot of them, getting back into the branch and reconnecting personally is important. And, you know, there's also, there's other, you know, business folks that, uh, you know, maybe had somebody from the office who would run out and make deposits and do other things. And those people probably are doing that less than they used to. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a continuation of, you know, utilizing technology, but also trying to strike the right balance. And, as you and I've talked about in the past, I mean, First Bank, community banks are relationship-driven organizations. Right. So we're not trying to eliminate the personal interaction. But at the same time, we got to meet the customers where they want to be met. So, Yeah, that's kind of the optimal thing. I know that's what we learned in our, our industry. Obviously, it's a person-to-person -person business, so sure. people want to meet each other. But it's kind of nice. And, and it, what we found is it's like an add-in, right? So I, I found we had more touches, more communication with the client, because now not only do we have the option to meet in person, if there's something quick they want to do, they can just do it right then, sure. right? And so they get that part of it done when maybe they would have said, ah, oh, I want to go into the bank, but I don't really have time to do that, so let me just go. Now I know how to deposit the checks, so let me just get those checks deposited. Because that's my wife. She loves to go to the bank. She loves to hang out there. My yeah. daughter and I are like, just take a picture of it. You don't right, have to go right. to the bank, right? So, but she likes that social interaction, and that's sure. just the way it is. So I completely understand both sides of that. 
um, kind of observing it myself. And I guess you're seeing that too. Yeah, and we see that with our commercial customers where we have some that are very eager to get back to meeting in person. And then we have others that are, you know, just as happy to do a Zoom or something else. So Right. Yeah, that's awesome. Are we going to take another quick break? You're listening to Master Your Finances. This is Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, certified financial planner professional. Learn about tax efficiency, liability, owning, managing, and saving your money and more from Kurt and his experienced panel of guests. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider University offers flexible education for adult learners. For more information, it's rider.edu slash next step. Welcome back. You're listening to Master Your Finance. I'm here with Pat Ryan of First Bank. And uh, you guys did a great job. I know just people that have been involved with you that awesome response during the pandemic and how you guys got the money out the door, so to speak. Because I know initially people kind of forget all that, but that was really a huge stress point, especially for small business owners wondering how they were going to manage all that. And you guys stepped right up and took care of it about as fast as anybody that I'm aware of, uh, which is fantastic. So that brings us to another question. Like some people don't really understand the concept between like your major like Wall Street type banking operations and then the community bank. Now you've actually been exposed to both, right? So when you first sure. got out of college, where did you go and how did that experience relate back to what you're doing now? Yeah, well, I, you know, like a lot of kids, I went to a liberal arts school up in uh, upstate New York called Hamilton College, had a great education, but didn't necessarily learn what I wanted to do for the rest of my life while I was there. And so... Uh, you know, my father was a career banker and uh, always had a bit of an interest in banking. So uh, I applied for and was fortunate enough to get a job at, at Goldman Sachs coming out of college and, and learned a ton, had an incredible experience. But at the end of the day, decided to take a look at other things before making a final decision just because of, uh, you know, some of the trade-offs that are uh, that are there. I mean, the the, the quality of the work is incredibly interesting, incredibly demanding, learn a ton, uh, certainly get compensated well. But there was an important piece for me that was missing, which was the community impact piece. And uh, it's not a knock against, you know, Goldman or the Wall Street banks. It's just not their business model, right? They're designed to raise capital for the largest companies and governments all over the world. But at the end of the day, for me, uh, I was looking for something where I could feel like I could make a personal difference in the community where I lived. And uh, having seen the example of community banking through my dad and his career, uh, I noticed that that was perhaps the the best combination of, you know, challenging environment, uh, opportunity to do well personally, but at the same time really know that uh, the work I was doing was, was having an impact on the community, which is really interesting because when you think back to PPP, you know, we had our staff working around the clock to try to find ways to get these PPP loans out the door. And you'd think, geez, you know, that sounds terrible. Everyone's working all the time. But so many people that are in community banking are doing it because they want to help, because they want to make a difference. And here was this program where everybody really could see firsthand how our role as bankers could be so important to the communities we serve. So it was really very rewarding, despite all the you know, the sleepless nights. Yeah. I mean, did you have any response from any of the, like the people that you dealt with, the business owners, any, you know, anybody says, Hey, wow, I'm really glad you guys did this for me. Right. So oh, sure. I mean, you know, you could, you could hear the anxiety, you could hear the fear in the voices of the folks you were talking about that, you know, everything that they built over the course of their professional career and for their families was at risk. And uh, just to not only be able to 
get them access to the funding, but just to be able to help them know, okay, here's where we are in the process, here's what's happening. And it just it became an incredible relief for companies to know, hey, I've got somebody working with me who can help. And, uh, you know, it really uh, it was really tremendously rewarding. And I think our team, uh, despite the uh, the long hours, really, you know, it was a reminder of why we all got into community banking. In the yes, first it's more place. than just the money, right? It's that relationship and that impact that you're having on them, right? Well, listen, everybody wants to do well professionally, right. personally, and for their family. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, money's not the primary motivator for everybody. And uh, finding an opportunity where you can make a big impact, that's, to me, the value of community banking. So how does it actually impact? I know community banking is different than like Wall Street banking as far as how it impacts like the local community. So how do you guys impact them versus like a larger institution? Yeah, I think the simplest thing is just in the in the products and services that we offer, right? So a community bank, uh, the simplest definition is not just that it's smaller than the Wall Street banks, but we tend to focus on the more traditional banking products that most folks think of, right? We take deposits, and then we use those funds to lend it back out in the community. And so those are two valuable services, protecting the hard-earned cash from the local uh, citizens and the businesses, and then making sure that money gets reinvested in the community for the growth and the economic development of the area. And we do it all very locally, right? So, the, you know, the Wall Street banks are dealing with the, you know, the largest corporations doing business all over the world that this, you know, that's great that they do that, but it's not always stuff you can see and touch and feel. Whereas, you know, you lend somebody money to start a new restaurant, you can go to that restaurant and eat there and see how they're having an impact on the area where they serve or helping local nonprofits, uh, you know, buy a facility to expand their presence. I mean, there's so many ways that the the lending projects we work on, we can see and feel and touch and have a, have a real, uh, you know, sense of pride in what we do. That, that brings us to another one. So what, um, Give us an example, like I guess you just did, of impact investing, right? Yeah. That's what community banks do. They do impact investing. So what does that mean exactly? Yeah, well, you know, that term has has uh, a lot of different meanings depending on the context. But, you know, to me, I think about impact investing. Obviously, we have capital. We have money to, to lend back into the community. And the fact that we're helping make sure it gets channeled to, you know, successful organizations that can repay the money, right? A lot of folks... They get angry. They think, well, why wouldn't the bank lend me the money? Well, the reminder to the community is it's not our money. It's your money right. that we're lending. So you want to make sure we're being thoughtful about, about where it goes, but then ultimately seeing how it does have that impact. Because, you know, think about the things we, we finance, corporate acquisitions, which creates jobs. We finance equipment acquisitions, which usually means people hiring, you know, companies hiring new people to uh, to work the equipment. You know, it's working capital to allow the business to grow. It's buying uh, real estate so they can expand their office presence or their uh, warehouse presence. So a lot of what we do doesn't just lead to the financial success of the business and the benefit of the employees that work there, but it a lot of times leads to growth and new jobs and you know, there's knock-on effects, right? You have uh, a new business that enters uh, enters an area. You know, all of a sudden there's secondary and tertiary businesses that are tied to providing services to that company, and so the economic impact can really be significant. So it's a great um, a great multiplier. I know one thing that sometimes people are. You mentioned it. You touched on it just briefly. You said, well, sometimes the bank will say no, but I view that as like you're helping, you're preventing them from making their own mistake, right? Because I think sometimes people don't realize that the finance entity, the bank, um, really is there to help you. 
And when they tell you this doesn't make sense financially for you, there's, there are good reasons for that, right? So can you explain a little, just touch on, I don't want to get into your details of your underwriting, but, no. but why underwriting is important and how that actually assists the bank, uh, assists the business owner become better at what they're doing. Well, listen, 100%, right? Sometimes somebody will come and say, here's my idea, here's how much I want to borrow, and, and our review of the facts will be, you know, A, maybe the idea is not the best idea for certain reasons, or B, the amount of money they want to borrow might just be too much. And, you know, the risk associated with debt isn't linear risk, right? So at the end of the day, if you want to borrow 50% to finance a new project, that's going to be very low risk. You get to 60%, okay, still fairly low risk. But the amount of risk at 75 80% is significantly more. And I think it's important for folks to remember that it's not just, oh, if I add a dollar of debt, it's just a little bit more risk. The, right. the risk curve actually, uh, you know, the the shape of that curve goes up significantly. So that's something that's helpful to remind folks. And the other piece is some folks think, I need money, the bank has money, let me go to the bank, they'll give me the money. Okay, well, that's true to a degree, but you really got to remember the the capital structure of business, which is to say that there's lots of different ways that different capital sources fit in. And so there's a need for equity. Sometimes folks want to borrow money because they don't want to bring in a partner, but because of the risk profile of the venture, they need equity financing, not debt financing. And so those are the conversations we have. A lot of times it's, hey, we like the idea, but you can't pay for this all with, with bank debt. You need, you need some equity. You might need some bank debt. You might need some, some mezzanine capital. I mean, there's different types of capital based on what you're trying to accomplish. So a lot of times it's not a binary yes, no. It's as presented, no, but here's our thoughts around how we think this could work. And then ultimately, it's up to the business owner to decide how they want to proceed. And, and I think that's the key that many people don't know is that when you do sit down with a community banker, they actually walk you through essentially your business idea and say, hey, maybe this doesn't work, but here are some things that we might be able to do that could work because you do want to lend money to a successful entity and you want them to be successful. So everybody succeeds together, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a consultative approach, but it's also, to me, the biggest difference between community banks and, and, and the international money center banks and the Wall Street banks is... We want to be consultative, right? Really big companies, they lose that ability to be nimble, flexible, creative because they have to have standardized products, right? right? And the answer is, okay, here's my checklist. If I can check yes to everything, I'll make the loan. And if not, I won't make the loan. They're not going to go the next step to try to figure out how do we put this deal together. Right. But that's what the community banks do really well. Right. And, and since you're a community bank, so how do you feel? I know you guys have expanded quite a bit. Um, so what differentiates, like, how you run First Bank, as you think may other community banks do. So what do you think your differentiator is there? Yeah, you know, it's a great question because I think, quite honestly, most banks are, are pretty similar. There's differences in business model. But fundamentally, we're trying to compete on service. We're trying to compete on being creative, nimble, and flexible. And the practical reality is that, you know, the percentage of the banking business that lives with community banks is 15 or 20 percent, right? It's down significantly from where it used to be. I think the big five banks now, 65% of all assets in the industry, in the banking industry are held by the largest banks. So at the end of the day, we're not competing that much with the community banks. From time to time, we do. Right. But the practical reality is collectively, the community banks are trying to regain some share from the bigger guys. Right. Awesome. All right, we're going to take another quick break. You're listening to Master Your Finances.
This is Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, Certified Financial Planner Professional. Learn about tax efficiency, liability, owning, managing, and saving your money and more from Kurt and his experienced panel of guests. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider University offers flexible education for adult learners. For more information, it's rider.edu slash next step. Welcome back. You're listening to Master Your Finance. I'm here with uh, Pat Ryan of First Bank. And you just did a great job. I mean, you, you had the opportunity to work on Wall Street, which you did for a little while. You figured you wanted to be more community connected. Uh, your dad was in banking, community banking. And so you kind of stepped in his footsteps. But you've done quite a bit. I know that you guys have grown uh, the community bank and your culture is awesome. And you did a great job during the PVP, the pandemic, and getting that out, the moratoriums that people had to endure and helping out the different business owners and you assist with people to really kind of make their businesses better uh, from the lending side, which a lot of times people don't understand that that's really what actually happens when you have a good relationship with a community bank. Um, so all of this leadership you have, which has been amazing, I've been here while you've been doing all this stuff, um, you were actually honored uh, this past year as Entrepreneur of the Year uh, 2022 for New Jersey. Um, so what do you attribute that to and kind of give us some ideas about why you're such a great le leader? Well, uh, let me start by saying that the uh, the Ian Y Award Entrepreneur of the Year was was a tremendous uh, accomplishment. But you know, folks like to give awards to people, but the practical reality is it's a it's an award for for the business and it's an award for the team. And so, the simple answer is, what did I do to earn the award? I thankfully surrounded myself with really great people who collectively, as a team have been able to uh, drive a lot of success for, for the bank over, over several years. So, um, you know, there's no, uh, what's this, there's no I in team. And uh, <laughs> ultimately, I appreciate that, you know, the organizations choose to, to recognize me personally. But the, the practical reality for that is it, it's a team award. It's based on the success of the business. Um, so uh, it was nice that, that we collectively got recognized there. Um, as far as overall leadership style, you know, to me, I think the most important things are, are transparency, right? I think you need to let people know what you're thinking and you need to follow through on what you say you're going to do. And uh, ultimately, it's making sure you care about the team and finding that right balance between, you know, caring, but, you know, having the ability to make tough decisions, which isn't always easy, right? I mean, a lot of times uh, the hardest part of, of running any business is the people part of the business. And, right. uh, you know, there are times where things need to change. Things need to be done differently. And uh, those can be some of the most difficult conversations. But you need to remain focused on the collective team, because if you focus on one or two individuals and what might happen there, uh, I've seen it happen in other organizations where, um, you know, an inability to make the hard decision in a, in a specific situation leads to problems throughout the organization. So it's about striking the right balance. Yeah, that's incredible. So I, I, I think you've got two skill sets that I'd like to get into here a little bit. Is that One, you do a great job of hiring the right people. And two, you do a great job of realizing when maybe there was an error or as a person's not fitting into the team and understanding how that can bring down the rest of the team. So you want to maybe give us a little insight as about what your process is for finding these great people that you have and what do you do and how do you how do you vet them and how do you kind of cultivate them into into your culture? 
Yeah, I think on the hiring side, there's two things that are critical. One is, you know, hiring for cultural fit. And I don't mean that to say, you know, there's a special brand of Kool-Aid at First Bank, and if you don't drink it, you can't work there. It's more about what do we think of our culture? We think, you know, we're a culture that's comprised of friendly, smart, hardworking people. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, if, if it doesn't feel like there's a fit, in terms of that overall culture, then that can be an immediate red flag and a decision not to move forward. But the other thing we try to do is is focus a lot on on attitude over over aptitude. So you know, finding somebody who knows how to do the job but maybe doesn't have the best attitude and doesn't fit well with the culture, you know, we're more likely to go with somebody who, you know, either worked with us internally, maybe they haven't done this new job before, but they're incredibly hard worker, they're motivated, they're a nice person, and, you know, we want to give that person a chance. And so we hire a lot from within when there's, when there's openings. And, you know, when we can't find a fit from within, you know, the key criterion is, does this person have the kind of attitude that, you know, they're just going to find a way to get it done and be a great team player. And, uh, you know, I think that's worked for us over the years. Yeah. So it sounds like I, I hear this from other business owners, like it's not necessarily the resume itself. I mean, that's key of, of a starting point, but it's more about that personal connection, the, who the person is, because you can teach them the skill sets, right? Because, yeah. you know, banking, everything's different. Everybody's got their own way of doing things. Um, so the other part of that is the tough decision part, I know this is a lot harder to do than it sounds. You go, oh, yeah, well, just that person's not working out. Let's. So do you have any kind of process you go through yourself where you say, okay, well, okay, well, here's somebody maybe we can help out and get them back on track a little bit. And then at some point you say, this just isn't working out. So how do you kind of go through that and what kind yeah, of I think the two thing, the two things we do there, I mean, you know, some folks will say, hey, hire slow, fire fast. The practical reality is firing fast just doesn't feel fair to folks, right? right? I mean, there are times where you see warning signs, and perhaps it would be more efficient in the long run to just pull the plug quickly, but I don't think that's fair to the individual. But what we do is we hold the managers accountable, right? When we see the warning signs, we say, all right, well, what what are we going to do as an organization to try to give this person an opportunity to address the deficiencies, right? Is it training? Is it, uh, is it more oversight? Is it clear goals and objectives? And, you know, basically putting a plan together for the individual that's struggling to say, hey, here's, here's where we need to go together. And sometimes the message is delivered and the individual works hard and they get themselves and the organization into a better place. And sometimes it just doesn't work. And the key to ultimately creating that separation is giving somebody the time and the tools to be successful. And that ultimately, if we've done that, I feel like we've done all we can. And sometimes it, it just doesn't fit. And the thing I try to remind our managers is if the fit isn't good, it's not good for either side, right? right. I mean, obviously there's challenges associated with a job termination, but in the long run, the individual is going to be better off in a, in a different profession or at a different company where the fit is better. So... This, when you walk through that whole process of handling your employees, so that helping them out and setting up the structure correctly, assisting when there's a tough time, and knowing when it's not a fit and when it is a fit, sounds a lot like the way you talk to your business owners. Yeah. Well, I mean, it kind of it kind of related a little bit along the same line. Is you got to set up a clear objectives, a plan, uh, make sure everything's clear, follow it, work hard you know, the right energy to get things done. So this really, to me, your corporate internal culture sounds like it fits a lot with your 
your business community that you're actually working with, the people that you probably have, have as your own clients. So that kind of flows through in a lot of ways, it sounds yeah, like. I, listen, I've never thought about it that way, Kurt, but I 100% agree with you. I mean, ultimately, it's about problem solving, right? If somebody right. walks in with a loan request that just doesn't feel right, you know, one choice could be to say no and move on, but we like to take the approach of, okay, well, what about it isn't quite right? And how do we address that? And how do we try to get to a, a better position? And I think that's the same that you do with, with your own team when there's performance issues or, you know, personality challenges or whatever it might be. So Yeah, no, that's awesome. So what is your formula for success? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't think uh, I don't think any anyone really has one formula that, that is simplistic. But, you know, ultimately, uh, I think on the business side, it's about, you know, getting the right people in the room, giving them the ability to lead and manage effectively without micromanaging them. But then, you know, on the backside, having the ability to make tough decisions when things aren't going the way they, they need to. I, you know, I think that's the formula for success in any business, right? It's about being fair, but it's also about being fair from all the different angles, right? We have primary constituency. We've got our employees, we've got our customers, we've got our shareholders, and when things are working well, they're working well for all three together. Right. And there are times where things get out of balance one way or the other. And we need to remember that we've got multiple constituencies. So you might have an issue on the employee side where you might want to do something. But if it's not the right solution for your customers or your shareholders, then you might have to make different decisions. That's great. So now what's next for First Bank? Well, you know, thankfully, we've had success. So to some degree, I think what's next is, you know, continue, continue with the playbook. You know, one of the things I didn't mention in terms of formula for success, for me, it's about having a very focused strategy, right? We're not trying to be all things to all people, right? We take deposits, we make loans. Now there's certain segments within there that, you know, you could you could think about as their own businesses. But fundamentally, it's about staying true to who we are, trying to be best in class in both of those primary lines of business, the deposit gathering and in the lending, and then, you know, continue to do it without our, throughout our broader footprint of New York to Philadelphia, which thankfully for us is an incredibly large sandbox to play in. So, you know, we don't need to go to the Midwest or California or Florida. We got plenty of business right here in our backyard. Our job is to continue to get the word out continue to look for business partnerships and acquisitions that we've done in the past. And, you know, I think we can continue to do what we're doing today in our markets and be, you know, two or three times the size we are without having to fundamentally change how the business works. Uh, that's just awesome. Uh, it's been great. I mean, I, I know you could do some acquisitions, but we're probably right, we're running out of time now. But I think it's uh, so it sounds to me when you bring in a new bank, is there, is there a cultural adjustment as well? Like when you when you do an acquisition, you want to briefly talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with, with bank acquisitions or any business acquisitions, you know, everybody has a culture, whether they intend it to be a certain way or not. A culture emerges, a culture is there. And it's almost always different, right? The bank A, bank B, it doesn't matter who's buying whom. There's a differences there. And then the question becomes, for the folks that have an open mind to – trying to see what the new culture is like. They tend to have success through the integration phase. And one of the things we push really hard on our side is to make sure our folks don't take a, we have it all figured out, we're right mentality. I mean, these are businesses that have had success in their own right. What can we learn from them? And it's not easy to do, but the goal is to take the best of both and, and bring them together. 
Awesome, Pat. Great. I really appreciate you coming on the show again today. You're listening to Master Your Finances. Have a wonderful day. That's all for today's episode of Master Your Finances. Miss Kurt Baker's biggest money managing tip or even a full episode? Head on over to MasterYourFinances.us or 1077thebronc.com slash MasterYourFinances. Look for Master Your Finances on Anchor, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time only on 1077 The Bronx.